Chapter 8. Who cares if you're a boy or a girl? Eowyn, in The Lord of the Rings, is my all-time favorite heroine. When her uncle, King Theoden, rides out with his men to fight against the Dark Lord Sauron, Eowyn desperately wants to go too. But she's a woman, so she is told she must stay behind. Sauron's armies are led by the Witch King of Engmar, an undead power so terrifying that all the men flee before him. King Theoden gets thrown off his horse and is about to be killed, but one knight stands to protect the fallen king. The Witch King laughs and recites a prophecy about himself. You fool, no living man may hinder me. But the knight laughs back. She takes off her helmet, her hair streams down, and she retorts, But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn I am, Eamon's daughter. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if you be not deathless. For living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. The scene is breathtaking. Eowyn's love-fueled courage draws him, draws me like a magnet. She's the kind of woman I want to be. In this chapter, we're going to ask some important questions. What does the Bible say about men and women? Is Christianity good or bad for women? Does following Jesus mean you have to fit in with everyone people expect or everything people expect of boys and girls? Should Christians be free to identify as the opposite sex or with neither sex or if our bodies don't match how we feel inside? What does the Bible say about people who are born intersex with bodies that are not typically male or female? These questions make us wonder, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? Who am I really? If Christianity is true, then the author of our lives is also the author of the Bible. And if we want to understand our own story, we need to understand God's big story. So we'll start at the beginning. In the beginning. According to many ancient philosophies, men were more important than women. But the Bible tells a different story. God made humans male and female in his own image. Men and women are equally important, but they are also importantly different. When you think about it, God could have designed things so that you didn't need both a man and a woman to make a baby. He could have miraculously made a new crop of people every 20 years or so, or he could have made us all like amoebas that can reproduce by themselves. But instead, God made us male and female, and designed us so that new humans could be created via the deep connection between a man and a woman that pictures Jesus' love for his church. In Genesis 2, God makes the man first and then says, it is not good that the man should be alone. So he makes the woman as a helper. This might sound like the woman is less important, just a helper. But in the Bible, the word helper usually describes God himself, so it can't mean women are less important than men. Instead, we see that men and women are meant to do God's work together. So what does the Bible say about what it means to be a man or a woman? The perfect man. The Bible gives us a picture of the one and only perfect man. Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, 1 He had the power to stop storms, summon angels, and defeat death. But his arms held little children, and his hands reached out to heal the sick. Jesus drove money changers out of God's temple with a whip, but he tenderly welcomed the lonely, rejected, and weak. When his friend Lazarus died, Jesus wept. When his friend Peter drew his sword to protect Jesus from getting arrested, Jesus healed the man Peter had hurt. 
Jesus is the greatest hero in the history of the world, but he fought his greatest battle by dying on a cross. Jesus is the rightful king of all the world, but he came not to be served, but to serve. Mark 10:45. Before his crucifixion, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and after his resurrection, he cooked them breakfast. Some people think real men don't cry, but Jesus cried. Some people think real men sleep with lots of women, but Jesus never even had a girlfriend. Some people think real men don't stand for insults, but Jesus took insults all day long. He defended the weak, but he wouldn't fight back to defend himself. Some people think real men don't cook or care for kids, but Jesus did both those things. If we want to know what it means to be a perfect man, we must look at Jesus. Women are called to copy Jesus, too. He is the perfect human, so all Christians, male or female, are called to imitate him. But the ways in which Jesus used his strength and power for others, not himself, is a particular model for men, who often have more physical strength and have traditionally had more power. So what does the Bible say about women? The Greatest Movement of Women in History Some of my friends think Christianity has pushed women down, but Christianity actually lifted women up. We may take it for granted that women are equally valuable as men, but that was not what people in Jesus' day believed. As we saw in chapter 4, when Jesus was born, it was normal for people to leave baby girls outside to die. They thought girls were less important than boys, but Jesus' teachings changed that. Jesus made lots of female friends and treated them as if they were equal to men. For instance, when his friend Mary was sitting at his feet to learn alongside his male disciples, Jesus defended her. He particularly cared for women other people looked down on. Jesus shocked his disciples by befriending a Samaritan woman who had had five husbands and was now living with a man she wasn't married to, and he held up a sinful woman who loved him as a moral example to a self-righteous man who didn't. As we saw in chapter 5, the first people to see Jesus after his resurrection were women, even though women at the time weren't trusted as witnesses in court. Some of my friends think that Christianity is misogynistic, which means hateful towards women. Just like with any other sin, Christians have sometimes acted that way. But from the very beginning, Jesus had especially drawn himself, or uh, Jesus has especially drawn women to himself. Historians believe that in the Greco-Roman Empire into which Jesus was born, there may have been twice as many men as women, because women often died childbirth and baby girls were often left outside to die. But the church seems to have been the other way around, with perhaps twice as many women as men. The second-century Greek philosopher Celsus mocked Christians, saying that they are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. Today, both in America and across the world, there are significantly more Christian women than men, and women are more likely to go to church, read the Bible, and pray. Christianity isn't against women. It's the greatest movement of women in all of history. What about feminism? Some people think that Christianity is against feminism, which is defined as the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of the sexes. But as we have seen, Christianity was actually the reason people started to think that women are equal to men. In fact, many of the first modern feminists were Christians. Women like Sojourner Truth, whom we met in Chapter 2, and Lucretia Mott, campaigned both for women's rights and for the rights of black people, recognizing that God made all humans in his image. 
Early Christian feminists argued that women were equal to men, so they should have the same rights as men to do things like vote in elections, own houses, work jobs, and be paid fairly for their work. They believed women were equal to men not in spite of their faith in Jesus, but because of it. In the Bible, we see the work of women valued in all sorts of ways. From a Christian perspective, work is valuable whether it is paid or unpaid, and caring for children is extremely important work. Some of my most intelligent and talented Christian friends feel called to care for their kids full-time. But raising kids is not the only job women are called to do. When Paul lists his ministry partners at the end of his letter to the Romans, he names nine women, including Phoebe, who delivered the letter, and two sisters, we think, named Tryphena and Tryphosa, whom he calls workers in the Lord. We don't know whether these women had children or not, but we do know that they were doing the vital work of spreading the good news about Jesus. We also know that some of the first female Christians had paid jobs outside the home. For example, Lydia is one of the people whose conversion story we read about in the book of Acts. We don't know whether or not she had children, but we do know that she had a household and that she was a founding member of the church in Philippi. Lydia is described as a seller of purple goods. We also know that Jesus himself was supported by money from some of his female followers, so there is no reason to think that Christian women should not work outside the home and be paid fairly for their work. For these reasons, I would be comfortable saying I'm a feminist. I'm happy to argue for women to have rights equal to men. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be both a mother and someone who is paid for working outside the home. I believe that women should have the right to vote and that they should be paid equally to men for doing the same work, but many Christians would not want to identify as feminists, despite believing that men and women are equal in God's sight, because some of the beliefs that get mixed in with feminism today are things that Christians can't accept. The most important example is a practice known as abortion, which we discussed in chapter 4. From the beginnings of the church, Christians have stood against surrounding cultures to say that babies are precious human beings in their own right and not property. Throughout history, the vast majority of babies who have died by abortion before birth or infanticide after birth have been girls. This is still true globally today. The idea that being pro-choice in favor of abortion means being pro-women does not fit with this reality. I also don't think a society that promotes sex without commitment, which often results in unplanned pregnancies that can end in abortion, is pro-women. As we saw in chapter 7, sex without commitment tends to be bad for women's happiness. In America, over 80% of women who have abortions are not married and can't count on the support of the baby's father. Arguing for abortion is known as being pro-choice, but many women feel like they don't have a choice, even if they want to keep the baby, because they don't have enough support. Many of the changes brought about by feminism in the last hundred years have been positive. Women have gained voting rights, more opportunities, and greater equality. But building a society in which commitment-free sex is promoted, the unique ability of women to carry and give birth to children is not highly valued, and pregnant women are often not properly supported does not strike me as pro-women. In fact, quite the opposite. So does it matter if we're male or female? As we saw in chapter 2, in Jesus' family, everyone is equal. Paul wrote to some of the first Christians, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians, Galatians 3.28 Whatever our race, or situation, or sex, we are all equally precious to God. But God made us male and female on purpose, and in some parts of life, for example, in marriage, as we saw in chapter 7, he calls men and women to different roles. 
I played soccer in college, and my job was to manage the defense. Everyone on our team had one aim, to make sure we got more goals than the other team. But we had different roles. The strikers weren't more important than the goalie, they simply had a different job. In the team of God's people, everyone has the same aim, worshiping God, loving others, and telling people about Jesus. But we all have different roles on the team. In some areas, these roles depend on whether God made us male or female. Throughout the last 2,000 years, women have played a massive role in spreading the message of Jesus. Both men and women are called to this work. But a few Christians in each church are called to teach the Bible to the whole church and lead God's family in that place. These people are often called pastors and elders, and these roles seem to be given in the Bible to qualified men. Paul connects this back to the story of Adam and Eve, where Adam was created first and given the commandment not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before Eve was created. Adam was trusted with that message. But then Satan, posing as a serpent, came and lied to Eve and questioned God's command. He told her that if she ate fruit from the tree, she would become like God. Eve ate the fruit, and instead of stopping Eve, Adam chose to eat the fruit as well. In this story, there were only two humans living under God's rule. But Paul's point seems to be that Adam should have been the one to answer the serpent as he was given the commandment by God in the first place, and that God has given men a particular responsibility to teach and lead in the church. This is not because women aren't as intelligent or as faithful as men, or because a woman couldn't be as good a speaker or leader as a man. As we have seen, the first people to see Jesus after he was raised from the dead were women, and it seems like the women believed that Jesus had been raised, while the male disciples still doubted. Paul also highlights many women as his fellow workers in the gospel. The fact that men are called to lead local churches also doesn't mean that men are more important than women. When two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, asked to have special leadership positions in his kingdom, Jesus explained to them that leadership in his kingdom was the opposite of leadership in the world. In the world, people take charge so they can get their own way. But Jesus explained that in his kingdom, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 43-45 Leaders in Jesus' kingdom don't come first. They come last. At the time when the New Testament was being written, and in many parts of the world today, teaching the Bible in public often meant getting attacked or arrested. So perhaps it's not surprising that God calls men to sacrifice in marriage and to lead in church. It's not about power and privilege. It's about his special call on men to serve and sacrifice, like Jesus served and sacrificed for us. So God made men and women equal, but in some areas he has called them to different roles. But what about people who are born with bodies that are neither fully male nor fully female? What about people born intersex? A few years ago, a good friend of mine had a baby who was born intersex. The baby looked physically more like a girl, but when the doctors checked, they found the baby didn't have a uterus, the organ designed to carry a developing new baby, but did have testes, the organs that produce sperm. My friends are raising their child as a girl, and right now this child seems comfortable as a girl. In fact, she seems to like all the things that our culture usually associates with little girls. But we don't know how she will feel when she grows up, and her parents are ready to give her lots of space to work through that as she gets older. In Jesus' day, some people were also born intersex. Other people were born male, but had their testes removed so that they could do particular jobs, like sing with a high voice or protect a king's wives. 
This is a horrible thing to do to a child, but sadly it was quite common in the ancient world. People who had had this done to them were called eunuchs. One of Jesus' first followers was a eunuch, and Jesus talked about eunuchs right after he taught that marriage was between one woman and one man for life. Jesus valued marriage, but he also valued singleness and taught that people who don't get married or aren't able to have children are very, very valuable in his kingdom too. So the fact that intersex people are often unable to have children doesn't make them any less precious in Jesus' sight or any less useful in Jesus' mission. Jesus himself never had kids, and he is the perfect human. So how does being intersex relate to being transgender? What about people who identify as transgender? Some people argue that because babies are occasionally born intersex, male and female are not clear categories, but that everyone is on a spectrum with completely male at one end and completely female at the other. They also say that our bodies don't have to define whether we are a man or a woman, but that if someone's feelings don't match their body, they should be able to decide whether they want to be recognized as male or female, or perhaps as non-binary or gender non-conforming, meaning they don't want to be recognized as either a man or a woman. Someone who was born with a male body, but later identifies as a woman, would be described today as a trans or transgender woman, and someone who was born with a female body, but identifies as a man, would be described as a trans or transgender man. Transgender people often take new names. For example, someone called John might switch to Jane and ask people to use she or her instead of he or him. Someone who identifies as non-binary or gender non-conforming might ask to be or might ask to be talked about as they. So what does Christianity say about all of this? To begin with, it's important for us to listen to other people and understand their feelings and experiences. When I was a kid, I didn't want to wear dresses and play with dolls. I wanted to sword fight with my brother in the woods. My mom made me do ballet. I hated it. Someone once gave me a pink My Little Pony for my birthday. I flushed it down the toilet. Don't try this, it's really bad for the toilet. I don't recall wanting to be a boy. That was never an option in my mind. But in my all-girls school, I acted every male role I could. As a teenager, I never wanted to paint my nails, wear makeup, shop for clothes, or talk about boys. Girly things weren't my thing. Some teens feel like I did, except much, much more. They feel like the body they were born with doesn't match how they feel on the inside. Some people choose to dress in ways typical of the opposite sex. They might also take medicines or have surgeries to make their bodies look like the opposite sex. If you have never felt this way, it can be hard to understand why someone would do this. And sadly, people who feel this way have often been laughed at or bullied. It is never right for Christians to mock and bully people. Jesus calls us to love others, especially if they are different from us. But Christians also believe that God made us male and female on purpose. So how should God or so how should Christians think about someone wanting to change their gender identity? First, we know that Jesus cares a lot about our feelings. He knows us from the inside out. He knows what we love and what makes us scared or sad. He knows when we feel like we don't fit in and when we wish we would, could be different. He loves us so much that he died for us. So if you are a boy, but you desperately wish you were a girl, or if you are a girl who longs to be a boy, Jesus sees you and knows you and loves you with an everlasting love. Second, the Bible tells us that God created everything through Jesus. Jesus made you. If you were born a boy, he meant for you to be a boy. If you were born a girl, he meant for you to be a girl. This doesn't mean that it will always be easy or that you have to do everything other people expect from girls or boys. 
As we saw earlier, Jesus cried and cooked and loved babies, and when people beat him up, he didn't fight back. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's okay to be different. Unlike lots of women, I hate fashion and shopping for clothes, but my husband, Brian, likes both those things, and that's okay. But the Bible also teaches us that we shouldn't always trust our feelings. We find our true selves not by following our feelings, but by following Jesus. So when our desires don't line up with following Jesus, we need to trust him. I shared in the last chapter that I tend to be romantically attracted to women. But being a Christian means learning to trust Jesus more than my feelings and saying no to romantic relationships with women. If I felt a deep desire to be a man and not a woman, I would need to trust Jesus with that desire too. In fact, following Jesus always means trusting him with our desires, even if it's really hard. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But, that, but Jesus doesn't ask us to do this alone. He gives us his spirit, and he gives us his body, other Christians, for help. So if you're struggling with being a boy or a girl, look for a Christian friend to talk to about your feelings. If you feel comfortable with your body, try to be the kind of person who could support a friend who is struggling in this way. How should Christians relate to transgender people? If you're a Christian and some of your classmates identify as transgender or non-binary, your job is not to avoid them or make fun of them. Your job is to tell them about Jesus and show them his love, just as you would to, just as you would to others. Loving people doesn't mean agreeing with all their decisions. My non-Christian friends make all sorts of decisions I disagree with. They're not working from the same roadmap, but I can still love them and listen to them. In fact, listening to someone's story is often the best starting point for showing love. Everyone wants to be known and understood. At times, though, loving someone means telling them when you don't think they're making the right decision. In one of my favorite moments in the Harry Potter series, Neville helps Gryffindor win the House Cup because he stood up to Harry, Ron, and Hermione when he thought they were doing the wrong thing. Dumbledore gives Neville five points for this act of courage, saying, It takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to our enemies, but just as much to stand up to our friends. Questioning whether it's the right decision for someone to live as the opposite sex, perhaps even taking medications or having surgeries to change their bodies in ways that they can never reverse, can be seen as being hateful in our culture today. But telling a friend that you love them as they are, and that you think the body they were born with is good, isn't hateful. All of us make decisions in light of what our friends and family think, and sometimes we need encouragement from our friends to accept, to accept ourselves. It can be easy to think that making a change to our bodies is the key to happiness, whether it's getting thinner or stronger or taller or having larger breasts or changing whether we are seen as a boy or a girl. But just as it's not hateful to tell a friend you love her at just the way she is, it's not hateful to tell a friend you love her as a girl or that you love him as a boy, even if our friends don't fit the stereotypes about boys and girls that say, girls should be like this and boys should be like that. What's more, when you think about it, if we no longer let our bodies tell us if we are male or female, those stereotypes are all we have left. Let me explain. What do man and woman mean? Earlier this year, the actor Daniel Radcliffe, who played Harry Potter in the films of J.K. Rowling's books, made a public statement. Transgender women are women. When he said this, he meant that people who were born with a male body but feel like they belong in the world as a woman should be recognized as women just as much as people who are born with a female body. 
Daniel Radcliffe said this in response to J.K. Rowling herself, saying that, while she personally thinks it's okay for people to live in the world as the opposite sex, the bodies we are born with and grew up with still matter, and that someone who was born male should not be treated as female in every situation. Some people were very angry with J.K. Rowling for saying this, and Daniel Radcliffe wanted to make clear that he didn't agree. But Daniel Radcliffe's statement highlights an important question. What does man or woman mean? Up until recently in our culture, for me to say I am a woman would mean, first and foremost, that I was born with a female body. There are significant differences between male bodies and female bodies. Even beyond what we can see with our eyes, scientists could tell whether you were a boy or a girl by examining a single cell from anywhere in your body. But if Daniel Radcliffe's claim that trans women are women is true, and being born with a female body isn't at the heart of what it means to be a woman, then what does it mean to be a woman? Does it mean wearing dresses and makeup, or wearing your hair long rather than short? Some women in our culture do those things, but no one would say that that was the definition of being a woman. Does it mean other people thinking you were born with a female body? If so, then the identity of a transgender person would depend on people not knowing the truth about his or her past. In conversations about transgender questions, people often talk as if there is something deep inside of us, not connected with our bodies, that defines whether we are male or female more than our bodies do. But while some people struggle with their gender identity throughout their life, others who feel uncomfortable with their bodies as teenagers find that those feelings change as they get older. If there was something other than our bodies that more truly defined us as male or female, we would expect that sense of identity always to stay the same throughout someone's life. Many people today think that Christians are foolish for believing things that cannot be measured with the tools of science. But the idea that there is a deep thing within us that tells us if we are male or female against the evidence of our physical bodies does not line up with science at all. And we are still left with the question, what does it mean to be a man or a woman if it doesn't relate to our biological sex? As a Christian, I am not surprised that our society is struggling to define what it means to be a man or a woman. As we saw in chapter 6, without belief in a creator God who made humans in his image, we are left without a real definition of what it means to be a human being. So no wonder we don't know what it means to be male or female to be a male or female human. As we saw in chapter 4, without belief in a creator God who gives us moral laws, we are like cartoon characters who have run off of a cliff and keep running in midair for a few seconds before we crash to the ground. As a Christian, I do believe that there is a deep voice inside me that tells me who I am. That voice is God's spirit, who unites every believer to Jesus like a body to its head, or a wife to her husband. The Spirit speaks through God's Word, the Bible, and guides His people. But from a Christian perspective, this voice inside isn't disconnected from our bodies, because the same God who lives within us by His Spirit also created our bodies. Jesus tells us that God created humans from the beginning, male and female, Matthew 19.4. If we're trusting in Jesus, He knows us from the inside out, and He makes us belong even when we feel like we don't fit. Growing up, I often feel inadequate as a woman. I still sometimes feel that way today, but when I do, I trust Jesus that he made me a woman on purpose and that he loves me just as I am. What's your story? Eowyn didn't fit in with other women, and yet because she was a woman, she was left behind when her uncle rode to war. But J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, gave Eowyn the special role of defeating the Witch King of Angmar and it was a job she could do only because she was a woman. Tolkien was an incredible storyteller, but God is even better. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he is the author of your story. 
He made you that he made you the boy or girl that you are, even if you don't feel like you fit. I don't know what he's planning or how he's going to use you on his team, but I do know this. God has promised that in all things he is working for the good of those who love him, and that if we lose the things we want for Jesus' sake, we will end up finding them in an even better way. You can count on that, now and forever. Chapter 8 Summary God made both men and women in his image. We are equally valuable and useful to his mission. Jesus is the perfect man. He always used his strength to serve others, and he did many things that don't fit with male stereotypes. Jesus' teachings and actions changed how women were viewed in society. Christianity is not against women. There have always been more Christian women than men. In fact, Christianity is the greatest movement of and for women in all of history. There are many things to which both men and women are called, but the Bible gives men and women different roles to play in marriage, and certain roles in the church seem to be given to men. This doesn't make men more important. In Jesus' kingdom, leadership is about service and sacrifice, not power and privilege. Some people are born intersex, with bodies that are neither male or fully female. Intersex people are precious to God and useful in Jesus' mission. Some people struggle with their gender identity and want to be recognized as the opposite sex from the bodies they were born with, or as being neither sex. But the Bible tells us that God made us male and female on purpose, and that we should trust him more than we trust our feelings, even when that is really hard. Christians are called to love and befriend transgender folk, just as they are called to love all people. This means Christians should listen to people who identify as transgender or non-binary, and try to understand their stories and feelings. But it doesn't mean Christians must affirm a friend's decision to live as the opposite sex. Loving people doesn't mean agreeing with all their decisions. Sometimes it means challenging them. If the idea of being a man or a woman is separated out from having a male or a female body, we are left without any real idea of what being a man or a woman actually means. But if there is no God who created us in his image in the first place, we don't know what it means to be a human being either, so it's not surprising that we don't know what it means to be a man or a woman. Christians can trust that God made them male or female on purpose, and that he will use them as a man or as a woman in his mission, even if we feel deeply uncomfortable with our sex. He is the author of our story, and we can trust him with our very lives.